CD6. It was still dark when Dill, the master embalmer, woke up, his body twanging with the sensation that something was wrong. He slipped out of bed, dressed hurriedly, and pulled aside the curtain that did duty as a door. The night was soft and velvety. Behind the chirrup of insects, there was another sound, a frying noise, a faint sizzling on the edge of hearing. Perhaps that was what had woken him up. The air was warm and damp, curls of mist rose from the river, and the pyramids weren't flaring. He'd grown up in this house. It had been in the family of the master embalmers for thousands of years, and he'd seen the pyramids flare so often that he didn't notice them, any more than he noticed his own breathing. But now they were dark and silent, and the silence cried out and the darkness glared. But that wasn't the worst part. As his horrified eyes stared up at the empty sky over the necropolis, they saw the stars and what the stars were stuck to. Dill was terrified. And then, when he had time to think about it, he was ashamed of himself. After all, he thought, it's what I've always been told is there. It stands to reason. I'm just seeing it properly for the first time. There. Does that make me feel any better? No. He turned and ran down the street, sandals flapping, until he reached the house that held Gurn and his numerous family. He dragged the protesting apprentice from the communal sleeping mat and pulled him into the street, turned his face to the sky and hissed, "'Tell me what you can see.' Gurn squinted. "'I can see the stars, master,' he said. "'What are they on, boy?' Gurn relaxed slightly. That's easy, master. Everyone knows the stars are on the body of the goddess Nept, who arches herself from... Oh, bloody hell! You can see her too. Oh, mummy! whispered Gurn and slid to his knees. Dill nodded. He was a religious man. It was a great comfort knowing that the gods were there. It was knowing they were here. That was the terrible part. Because the body of a woman arched over the heavens, faintly blue, faintly shadowy in the light of the watery stars. She was enormous, her statistics interstellar. The shadow between her galactic breasts was a dark nebula, the curve of her stomach a vast wash of glowing gas, her navel the seething dark incandescence in which new stars were being born. She wasn't supporting the sky, she was the sky. Her huge, sad face, upside down on the turnwise horizon, stared directly at Dill. And Dill was realising that there are few things that so shake belief as seeing, clearly and precisely, the object of that belief. Seeing, contrary to popular wisdom, isn't believing. It's where belief stops because it isn't needed anymore. Oh, sod, moaned Gurn. Dill struck him across the arm. Stop that, he said, and come with me. Oh, master, whatever shall we do? Dill looked around the sleeping city. He hadn't the faintest idea. "'We'll go to the palace,' he said firmly. "'It's probably a trick of the... Uh, of the... of the dark. Anyway, the sun will be up presently.' He strode off, wishing he could change places with Gurn and show just a hint of gibbering terror. The apprentice followed him at a sort of galloping creep. "'I can see the shadows against the stars, master. Can you see them, master? Around the edge of the world, master?' "'Just mists, boy.' said Dill, resolutely keeping his eyes fixed in front of him and maintaining a dignified posture as appropriate to the keeper of the left-hand door of the Natron Lodge and holder of several medals for needlework. There, he said. See, Gurn, the sun is coming up. They stood and watched it. 
Then Gurn whimpered very quietly. Rising up the sky very slowly was a great flaming ball, and it was being pushed by a dung beetle bigger than worlds. Book Three, The Book of the New Sun The sun rose, and because this wasn't the old kingdom out here, it was a mere ball of flaming gas. The purple night of the high desert evaporated under its blow-lamp glare. Lizards scuttled into cracks in the rocks. Eubastard settled himself down in the sparse shadow of what was left of the cefacia bushes, peered haughtily at the landscape, and began to chew cud and calculate square roots in base seven. Tepic and Petracci eventually found the shade of a limestone overhang and sat glumly staring out at the waves of heat wobbling off the rocks. "'I don't understand,' said Petracci. "'Have you looked everywhere?' "'It's a country. It can't just bloody fall through a hole in the ground.' "'Where is it, then?' said Petracci evenly. Tepic growled. The heat struck like a hammer, but he strode out over the rocks as though three hundred square miles could perhaps have been hiding under a pebble or behind a bush. The fact was that the track dipped between the cliffs, but almost immediately rose again and continued across the dunes into what was quite clearly to sort. He'd recognised a wind-eroded sphinx that had been set up as a boundary marker. Legend said it prowled the borders in times of dire national need, although legend wasn't sure why. He knew they had galloped into Ephebe. He should be looking across the fertile, pyramid-speckled valley of the Dajel that lay between the two countries. He'd spent an hour looking for it. It was inexplicable. It was uncanny. It was also extremely embarrassing. He shaded his eyes and stared around for the thousandth time at the silent, baking landscape, and moved his head, and saw Dajeli Baby. It flashed across his vision in an instant. He jerked his eyes back and saw it again, a brief flash of misty colour that vanished as soon as he concentrated on it. Some minutes later, Petracci peered out of the shade and saw him get down on his hands and knees. When he started turning over rocks, she decided it was time he should come back in out of the sun. He shook her hand off his shoulder and gestured impatiently. I found it! He pulled a knife from his boot and started poking at the stones. Where? Here. She laid a ringed hand on his forehead. Oh, yes, she said, I see. Yes, good. Now I think you'd better come into the shade. No, I mean it. Here, look. She hunkered down and stared at the rock to humour him. There's a crack, she said doubtfully. Look at it, will you? You have to turn your head and sort of look out of the corner of your eye. Tepic's dagger smacked into the crack, which was no more than a faint line on the rock. Well, it goes on a long way, said Petracci, staring along the burning pavement. All the way from the second cataract to the delta, said Tepic. Covering your eye with one hand helps. Please give it a try, please. She put one hesitant hand over her eye and squinted obediently at the rock. Eventually she said, It's no good, I can't see. She stayed motionless for a moment and then flung herself sideways onto the rocks. Tepic stopped trying to hammer the knife into the crack and crawled over to her. "'I was right on the edge!' she wailed. "'You saw it?' he said hopefully. She nodded, and with great care got to her feet and backed away. "'Did your eyes feel as though they were being turned inside out?' said Tepic. "'Yes,' said Petracci coldly. "'Can I have my bangles, please?' "'What?' 
My bangles. You put them in your pocket. I want them, please. Tepic shrugged and fished in his pouch. The bangles were mostly copper with a few bits of chipped enamel. Here and there the craftsman had tried without much success to do something interesting with twisted bits of wire and lumps of coloured glass. She took them and slipped them on. Do they have some occult significance? he said. What's occult mean? she said vaguely. Oh, what do you need them for, then? I told you I don't feel properly dressed without them on. Tepic shrugged and went back to rocking his knife in the crack. Why are you doing that? she said. He stopped and thought about it. I don't know, he said, but you did see the valley, didn't you? Yes. Well, then? Well, what? Tepic rolled his eyes. Didn't you think it was a bit, well, odd? A whole country just more or less vanishing? It's something you don't bloody well see every day, for God's sake. How should I know? I've never been out of the valley before. I don't know what it's supposed to look like from outside. And don't swear. Tepic shook his head. I think I will go and lie down in the shade, he said. What's left of it, he added, for the brass light of the sun was burning away the shadows. He staggered over to the rocks and stared at her. The whole valley has just closed up, he managed at last. All those people. I saw cooking fires, said Petracci, slumping down beside him. It's something to do with the pyramid, he said. It looked very strange just before we left. It's magic, or geometry, or one of those things. How do you think we can get back? I don't want to go back. Why should I want to go back? It's the crocodiles for me. I'm not going back, not just for crocodiles. Um, perhaps I could pardon you or something, said Tepic. Oh, yes, said Petracci, looking at her nails. You said you were the king, didn't you? I am the king. That's my kingdom over... Tepic hesitated, not knowing in which direction to point his finger. Somewhere. I'm king of it. You don't look like the king, said Petracci. Why not? He had a golden mask on. That was me. So you ordered me thrown to the crocodiles? Yes, I mean, no. Tepic hesitated. I mean, the king did. I didn't, in a way. Anyway, I was the one who rescued you, he added gallantly. There you are, then. Anyway, if you were the king, you'd be a god, too. You aren't acting very godlike at the moment. Yes, well, um, Tepic hesitated again. Petracci's literal-mindedness meant that innocent sentences had to be carefully examined before being sent out into the world. "'I'm basically good at making the sun rise,' he said. "'I don't know how, though. And rivers. You want any rivers flooding? I'm your man. God, I mean.' He lapsed into silence as a thought struck him. "'I wonder what's happening in there without me,' he said. Petracci stood up and set off down to the gorge. "'Where are you going?' She turned. Well, Mr. King, or God, or Assassin, or whatever, can you make water? What, here? I mean to drink. There may be a river hidden in that crack, or there may not. But we can't get at it, can we? So we have to go somewhere where we can. It's so simple I should think even kings could understand it. He hurried after her, down the scree, to where you bastard was lying with his head and neck flat on the ground, flicking his ears in the heat, and idly applying you vicious brute's theory of transient integrals to a succession of promising sissoid numbers. Petracci kicked him irritably. "'Do you know where there is water, then?' said Tepic. 
E, stroke 27, 11 miles. Petracci glared at him from coal-ringed eyes. You mean you don't know? You were going to take me into the desert and you don't know where the water is? Well, I rather expected I was going to be able to take some with me. You didn't even think about it. Listen, you can't talk to me like that. I'm a king. Tepic stopped. You're absolutely right, he said. I never thought about it. Where I come from, it rains nearly every day. I'm sorry. Petracci's brows furrowed. Who rains nearly every day, she said. No, I mean rain. You know, very thin water coming out of the sky. What a silly idea. Where do you come from? Tepic looked miserable. Where I come from is Ankh-Morpork. Where I started from is here. He stared down the track. From here, if you knew what you were looking for, you could just see a faint crack running across the rocks. It climbed the cliffs on either side, a new vertical fault in the thickness of a line that just happened to contain a complete river kingdom and 7,000 years of history. He'd hated every minute of his time there, and now it had shut him out. And now, because he couldn't, he wanted to go back. He wandered down to it and put his hand over one eye. If you jerked your head just right. It flashed past his vision briefly and was gone. He tried a few times more and couldn't see it again. If I hacked the rocks away... No, he thought, that's silly. It's a line. You can't get into a line. A line has no thickness. Well-known fact of geometry. He heard Petracci coming up behind him, and the next moment her hands were on his neck. For a second he wondered how she knew the Cathati death grip, and then her fingers were gently massaging his muscles, stresses melting under their expert caress, like fat under a hot knife. He shivered as the tension relaxed. Oh, that's nice, he said. We're trained for it. Your tendons are knotted up like ping-pong balls on a string, said Petracci. Tepic gratefully subsided onto one of the boulders that littered the base of the cliff and let the rhythm of her fingers unwind the problems of the night. "'I don't know what to do,' he murmured. "'Oh, that feels good.' "'It's not all peeling grapes being a handmaiden,' said Petracci. "'The first lesson we learn is when the master has had a long, hard day, it is not the best time to suggest the congress of the fox and the persimmon. "'Who says you have to do anything?' I feel responsible. Tepic shifted position like a cat. If you know where there is a dulcimer, I could play you something soothing, said Petracci. I've got as far as Goblin's Picnic in Book One. I mean, a king shouldn't let his kingdom just vanish like that. All the other girls can do chords and everything, said Petracci wistfully, massaging his shoulders. But the old king always said he'd rather hear me. He said it used to cheer him up. I mean, it'll be called the Lost Kingdom, said Tepic drowsily. How will I feel then, I ask you? He said he liked my singing, too. Everyone else said it sounded like a flock of vultures who've just found a dead donkey. I mean, King of a Lost Kingdom. It'd be dreadful. I've got to get it back. You bastard slowly turned his massive head to follow the flight of an errant blowfly, Deep in his brain, little columns of red numbers flickered, detailing vectors and speed and elevation. The conversation of human beings seldom interested him, but it crossed his mind that the males and females always got along best when neither actually listened fully to what the other one was saying. 
It was much simpler with camels. Tepic stared at the lion in the rock. Geometry, that was it. We'll go to Ephebe, he said. They know all about geometry, and they have some very unsound ideas. Unsound ideas are what I could do with right now. Why do you carry all these knives and things? I mean, really? Hmm? Sorry. All these knives? Why? Tepic thought about it. I suppose I don't feel properly dressed without them, he said. Oh! Petrucci dutifully cast around for a new topic of conversation. Introducing topics of amusing discourse was also part of a handmaiden's duties. She'd never been particularly good at it. The other girls had come up with an astonishing assortment, everything from the mating habits of crocodiles to speculation about life in the netherworld. She'd found it heavy going after talking about the weather. So, she said, you've killed a lot of people, I expect. Mm. As an assassin, I mean, you get paid to kill people. Have you killed lots? Do you know you tense your back muscles a lot? I don't think I ought to talk about it, he said. I ought to know, if we've got to cross the desert together and everything. More than a hundred? Good heavens, no. Well, less than fifty? Tepic rolled over. Look, even the most famous assassins never killed more than thirty people in all their lives, he said. Less than twenty, then? Yes. Less than ten? I think, said Tepic, it would be best to say a number between zero and ten. Just so long as I know, these things are important. They strolled back to you bastard, but now it was Tepic who seemed to have something on his mind. All this Senate, he said. Congress, corrected Petrucci. You were more than fifty people? There's a different name for that sort of woman, said Petrucci, but without much rancour. Sorry, um, less than ten? Let's say, said Petrucci, a number between zero and ten. You bastard spat. Twenty feet away, the blowfly was picked cleanly out of the air and glued to the rock behind it. Amazing how they do it, isn't it? said Tepic. Animal instinct, I suppose. You bastard gave him a haughty glare from under his sweep the desert eyelashes and thought, let Z equal E10, cud, 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 then DZ equals 1E brackets 10D0 equals 1ZD0, or D0 equals DZ over IZ. Pataclusp, still in his nightshirt, wandered aimlessly among the wreckage at the foot of the pyramid. It was humming like a turbine. Pataclusp didn't know why, knew nothing about the vast expenditure of power that had twisted the dimensions by ninety degrees and was holding them there against terrible pressures, but at least the disturbing temporal changes seemed to have stopped. There were fewer suns around than there used to be. In truth, he could have done with finding one or two. First he found the capstan, which had shattered its electrum sheathing peeled away. In its descent from the pyramid, it had hit the statue of Hat, the vulture-headed god, bending it double and giving it an expression of mild surprise. A faint groan sent him tugging at the wreckage of a tent. He tore at the heavy canvas an unearthed 2B, who blinked at him in the grey light. <laughs> it, it didn't work, Dad, he moaned. We'd almost got it up there, and then the whole thing just sort of, sort of twisted. The builder lifted a spar off his son's legs. Anything broken, he said quietly. Just bruised, I think. 
The young architect sat up, wincing, and craned to see round. "'Where's 2A?' he said. "'He was higher up than me, nearly on the top.' "'I've found him,' said Patterclasp. Architects are not known for their attention to subtle shades of meaning, but 2B heard the lead in his father's voice. "'He's... he's... he's not dead, is he?' he whispered. "'I don't think so. I'm not sure. He's alive, but... he's moving, he's moving.' Well, you'd better come and see. I think something quantum has happened to him. You bastard plodded onwards at about 1.247 metres per second, working out complex conjugate coordinates to stave off boredom while his huge plate-like feet crunched on the sand. Lack of fingers was another big spur to the development of camel intellect. Human mathematical development had always been held back by everyone's instinctive tendency when faced with something really complex in the way of triform polynomials or parametric differentials to count fingers. Camels started from the word go by counting numbers. Deserts were a great help, too. There aren't many distractions. As far as camels were concerned, the way to mighty intellectual development was to have nothing much to do and nothing to do it with. He reached the crest of the dune, gazed with approval over the rolling sands ahead of him, and began to think in logarithms. "'What's Iffy like?' said Petracci. "'I've never been there. Apparently it's ruled by a tyrant. "'I hope we don't meet him, then?' Tepic shook his head. "'It's not like that,' he said. "'They have a new tyrant every five years, and they do something to him first. He hesitated. "'I think they elect him.' Is that something like they do on tomcats and bulls and things? Um, you know, to make them stop fighting and be more peaceful? Tepic winced. To be honest, I'm not sure, he said, but I don't think so. They've got something they do it with. I, I think it's called a democracy, and it means everyone in the whole country can say who the new tyrant is. One man, one... He paused. The political history lesson seemed a very long while ago, and had introduced concepts never heard of in De Jelly Baby, or in Ankh Morpork, for that matter. He had a stab at it anyway. One man, one vet. That's for the electing, then? He shrugged. It might be, for all he knew. The point is, though, that everyone can do it. They're very proud of it. Everyone has... He hesitated again, certain now that things were amiss. The vet... Except for women, of course, and children, and criminals, and slaves, and stupid people, and people of foreign extraction, and people disapproved of for, um, um, various reasons, and lots of other people, but everyone apart from them. It's a very enlightened civilization. Petracci gave this some consideration. And that's democracy, is it? They invented it in Ephib, you know said Tepic, feeling obscurely that he ought to defend it. "'I bet they had trouble exporting it,' said Petracci, firmly. The sun wasn't just a ball of flaming dung pushed across the sky by a giant beetle. It was also a boat. It depended on how you looked at it. The light was wrong. It had a flat quality, like water left in a glass for weeks. There was no joy to it. It illuminated but without life like bright moonlight, rather than the light of day. But Pataclasp was more worried about his son. "'Do you know what's wrong with him?' he said. His other son bit his stylus miserably. His hand was hurting. He'd tried to touch his brother, and the crackling shock 
had taken the skin off his fingers. I, uh, I might, he ventured. Can you cure it? I um, don't think so. What is it, then? Well, Dad, when you were up on the pyramid, well, when it couldn't flare, you see, I'm, I'm sure it twisted around. Time, you see, is just another dimension. Um, Pataclus rolled his eyes. None of that architect's talk, boy, he said. What's wrong with him? I think he's dimensionally maladjusted, Dad. Time and space has got a bit mixed up for him. That's why he's, he's moving sideways all the time. Pataclusp 2B gave his father a brave little smile. He always used to move sideways, said Pataclusp. His son sighed. Yes, Dad, he said, but that was just normal. All accountants move like that. Now he's moving sideways because that's like, well, it's, 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 like, it's like time to him. Pataclusp frowned. Drifting gently sideways wasn't 2A's only problem. He was also flat. Not flat like a card with a front, back and an edge, but flat from any direction. Puts me exactly in mind of them people in the frescoes, he said. Where's his depth, or whatever you call it? Uh, I think that's in time, said Tooby helplessly. Ours, not his. Pataclusp walked around his son, noting how the flatness followed him. He scratched his chin. So he can walk in time, can he? he said slowly. That may be possible, yes. Do you think we could persuade him to stroll back a few months and tell us not to build that bloody pyramid? He can't communicate, Dad. Not much change there, then. Pataclasp sat down on the rubble, his head in his hands. It had come to this. One son, normal and stupid, one flat as a shadow. And what sort of life could the poor flat kid have? He'd go through life being used to open locks, clean the ice off windscreens, and sleeping cheaply in trouser presses in hotel bedrooms. This is, of course, a loose translation, since Pataclusp did not know the words for ice, windscreens, or hotel bedrooms. Interestingly, however, Squiggle Eagle Eagle Vars Wavy Line Dark translates directly as a press for barbarian leg coverings. Being able to get under doors and read books without opening them would not be much of a compensation. 2A drifted sideways, a flat cutout on the landscape. Can't we do anything, he said, roll him up neatly or something? 2B shrugged. We, we, we could put something in the way. That might be a good idea. It, it would stop anything worse happening to him because it, 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 it wouldn't have time to happen in, I think. They pushed the bent statue of Hat, the vulture-headed god, into the flat one's path. After a minute or two, his gentle sideways drift brought him up against it. There was a fat blue spark that melted part of the statue, but the movement stopped. Why the sparks? said Pataclusp. It's a bit like flare light, I think. Pataclusp hadn't got where he was today. No, he'd have to correct himself. Hadn't got to where he had been last night without eventually seeing the advantages in the unlikeliest situations. "'He'll save on clothing,' he said slowly. "'I mean, he can just paint it on.' "'I uh, don't think you've quite got the idea, Dad,' said Tooby, wearily. He sat down beside his father and stared across the river to the palace. "'Something going on over there,' said Pataclusp. "'Do you think they've noticed the pyramid?' "'I shouldn't be surprised.' 
It's moved around ninety degrees, after all. Pataclus looked over his shoulder and nodded slowly. Funny that, he said. Bit of structural instability there. Dad, it's a pyramid. We should have flared it. I, t I told you. The forces involved. It's, it's, it's just too... A shadow fell across them. They looked around. They looked up. They looked up a bit more. Oh, my, said Pataclusp. It's Hat, the vulture-headed god. Ephebe lay beyond them, a classical poem of white marble lazing around its rock on a bay of brilliant blue. What's that? said Petracci, after studying it critically for some time. It's the sea, said Tepic. I told you, remember? Waves and things? You said it was all green and rough. Sometimes it is. Hmm. The tone of voice suggested that she disapproved of the sea, but before she could explain why, they heard the sound of voices raised in anger. They were coming from behind a nearby sand dune. There was a notice on the dune. It said, in several languages, Axiom Testing Station. Below it, in slightly smaller writing, it added, Caution, Unresolved Postulates. As they read it, or at least as Tepic read it and Petrachi didn't, there was a twang from behind the dune, followed by a click, followed by an arrow zipping overhead. You bastard glanced up at it briefly, and then turned his head and stared fixedly at a very small area of sand. A second later, the arrow thudded into it. Then he tested the weight on his feet, and did a small calculation which revealed that two people had been subtracted from his back. Further summation indicated that they had been added to the dune. "'What did you do that for?' said Petracci, spitting out sand. "'Someone fired at us!' "'I shouldn't think so. I mean, they didn't know we were here, did they? You needn't have pulled me off like that.' Tepic conceded this rather reluctantly, and eased himself cautiously up the sliding surface of the dune. The voices were arguing again. "'Give in!' "'We simply haven't got all the parameters right.' "'I know what we haven't got all right.' "'What is that, pray?' "'We haven't got any more bloody tortoises, that's what we haven't got.' Tepic carefully poked his head over the top of the dune. He saw a large cleared area surrounded by complicated ranks of markers and flags. There were one or two buildings in it, mostly consisting of cages, and several other intricate constructions he could not recognise. In the middle of it all were two men, one small, fat and florid, the other tall and willowy, with an indefinable air of authority. They were wearing sheets. Clustered around them and not wearing very much at all were a group of slaves. One of them was holding a bow. Several of them were holding tortoises on sticks. They looked a bit pathetic, like tortoise lollies. Anyway, it's cruel, said the tall man. Poor little things. They look so sad with their little legs waggling. It's logically impossible for the arrow to hit them, the fat man threw up his hands. It shouldn't do it. You must be giving me the wrong type of tortoise, he added accusingly. We ought to try again with faster tortoises. Or slower arrows? Possibly, possibly. Tepic was aware of a faint scuffling by his chin. There was a small tortoise scurrying past him. It had several ricochet marks on its shell. We'll have one last try, said the fat man. He turned to the slaves. You lot, go and find that tortoise. The little reptile gave Tepic a look of mingled pleading and hope. 
He stared at it and then lifted it up carefully and tucked it behind a rock. He slid back down the dune to Petracci. "'There's something really weird going on over there,' he said. "'They're shooting tortoises.' "'Why?' "'Search me. They seem to think the tortoise ought to be able to run away.' "'What, from an arrow?' "'Like I said, it's really weird. You stay here. I'll whistle if it's safe to follow me.' "'What will you do if it isn't safe?' Uh, "'Scream.' He climbed the dune again, and after brushing as much sand as possible off his clothing, stood up and waved his cap at the little crowd. An arrow took it out of his hands. "'Oops!' said the fat man. "'Sorry!' He scurried across the trampled sand to where Tepic was standing and staring at his stinging fingers. "'Just had it in my hand,' he panted. "'Many apologies. Didn't realise it was loaded. Whatever will you think of me?' Tepic took a deep breath. "'Zeno's the name,' gasped the fat man before he could speak. "'Are you hurt? We did put up warning signs, I'm sure. Did you come in over the desert? You must be thirsty. Would you like a drink? Who are you? You haven't seen a tortoise up there, have you?' "'Damned fast things go like greased thunderbolts. "'There's no stopping the little buggers.' "'Tepic deflated again. "'Tortoises,' he said. "'Are we talking about those, you know, stones on legs?' "'That's right, that's right,' said Zeno. "'Take your eyes off them for a second and... and... vazoom!' "'Vazoom?' said Tepic. "'He knew about tortoises. "'There were tortoises in the old kingdom. "'They could be called a lot of things.' "'vegetarians, patient, thoughtful, even extremely diligent and persistent sex-maniacs, "'but never up until now fast. "'Fast was a word particularly associated with tortoises because they were not it. "'Are you sure?' he said. "'Fastest animal on the face of the disc, you common tortoise,' said Zeno. "'But he had the grace to look shifty. "'Logically, that is,' he added. To everyone without such a logical frame of reference, the fastest animal on the disc is the extremely neurotic, ambiguous Puzuma, which moves so fast that it can actually achieve near light speed in the disc's magical field. This means that if you can see a Puzuma, it isn't there. The fastest insect is the .303 bookworm. It evolved in magical libraries where it is necessary to eat extremely quickly to avoid being affected by the thaumic radiations. An adult .303 bookworm can eat through a shelf of books so fast that it ricochets off the wall. Most male presumers die young of acute ankle failure caused by running very fast after females which aren't there, and of course achieving suicidal mass in accordance with relativistic theory. The rest of them die of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, since it is impossible for them to know who they are and where they are at the same time and the seesawing loss of concentration this engenders means that the presumer only achieves a sense of identity when it is at rest, usually about fifty feet into the rubble of what remains of the mountain it just ran into at near light speed. The presumer is rumoured to be about the size of a leopard with a rather unique black-and-white check coat, although those specimens discovered by the disc's sages and philosophers have inclined them to declare that in its natural state the presumer is flat, very thin, and dead. The tall man gave Tepic a nod. "'Take no notice of him, boy,' he said. "'He's just covering himself because of the accident last week.' "'The tortoise did beat the hare,' said Zeno, sulkily. "'The hare was dead, Zeno,' said the tall man patiently, "'because you shot it.' 
I was aiming at the tortoise, you know, trying to combine two experiments, cut down on expensive research time, make full use of available... Zeno gestured with the bow, which now had another arrow in it. "'Excuse me,' said Tepic. "'Could you put it down a minute? "'Me and my friend have come a long way, "'and it would be nice not to be shot at again.' "'These two seem harmless,' he thought, and almost believed it. "'He whistled. "'On cue, Petracci came around the dune, leading you bastard. "'Tepic doubted the capability of her costume "'to hold any pockets whatsoever, "'but she seemed to have been able to repair her make-up, "'re-coal her eyes, and put up her hair.' She undulated towards the group like a snake in a skid, determined to hit the strangers with the full force of her personality. She was also holding something in her other hand. "'She's found the tortoise,' said Zeno. "'Well done!' The reptile shot back into its shell. Petracci glared. She didn't have much in the world except herself, and didn't like to be hailed as a mere holder of testudinoids. The tall man sighed. "'You know, Zeno,' he said, "'I can't help thinking you've got the wrong end of the stick "'with this whole tortoise-and-arrow business.' "'The little man glared at him. "'The trouble with you, Ibid,' he said, "'is that you think you're the biggest bloody authority on everything.' "'The gods of the old kingdom were awakening. "'Belief is a force. "'It's a weak force, by comparison with gravity. "'When it comes to moving mountains, gravity wins every time.' But it still exists, and now that the old kingdom was enclosed upon itself, floating free of the rest of the universe, drifting away from the general consensus that is dignified by the name of reality, the power of belief was making itself felt. For seven thousand years the people of Jelly Baby had believed in their gods. Now their gods existed. They had, as it were, the complete set and the people of the old kingdom were learning that, for example, Vat, the dog-headed god of the evening, looks a lot better painted on a pot than he does when all seventy feet of him, growling and stinking, is lurching down the street outside. Dios sat in the throne room, the gold mask of the king on his knees, staring out across the sombre air. The cluster of lesser priests around the door finally plucked up the courage to approach him, in the same general frame of mind as you would approach a growling lion. No one is more worried by the actual physical manifestation of a god than his priests. It's like having the auditors in unexpectedly. Only Kumi stood a little aside from the others. He was thinking hard. Strange and original thoughts were crowding along rarely trodden neural pathways, heading in unthinkable directions. He wanted to see where they led. Oh, Dios! murmured the high priest of Ket, the ibis-headed god of justice. What is the king's command? The gods are striding the land and they are fighting and breaking houses, O oh Dios. Where is the king? What would he have us do? Yea, said the high priest of Scrab, the pusher of the ball of the sun. He felt something more was expected of him. And verily, he added, your lordship will have noticed that the sun is wobbling, because all the gods of the sun are fighting for it, and... Uh, he shuffled his feet. The blessed scrab made a strategic withdrawal, and has, um, made an unscheduled landing on the town of Hort. A number of buildings broke his fall. And rightly so, said the high priest of Thrp, the charioteer of the sun. 
for, as all know, my master is the true god of the... His words tailed off. Dios was trembling, his body rocking slowly back and forth. His eyes stared at nothing. His hands gripped the mask almost hard enough to leave fingerprints in the gold, and his lips soundlessly shaped the words of the ritual of the second hour, which had been said at this time for thousands of years. "'I think it's the shock,' said one of the priests. "'You know, he's always been so set in his ways.' The others hastened to show that there was at least something they could advise on. "'Fetch him a glass of water. "'Put a paper bag over his head. "'Sacrifice a chicken under his nose.' There was a high-pitched whistling noise, the distant crump of an explosion, and a long hissing. A few tendrils of steam curled into the room. The priests rushed to the balcony, leaving Dios in his unnerving pool of trauma, and found that the crowds around the palace were staring at the sky. "'It would appear,' said the high priest of Sephet, god of cutlery, who felt that he could take a more relaxed view of the immediate situation, that Thurp has fumbled it and has fallen to a surprise tackle from Jehet, boatman of the solar orb. There was a distant buzzing, as of several billion blue bottles taking off in a panic, and a huge dark shape passed over the palace. But, said the priest of Sefut, here comes Scrab again. Yes, he's gaining height. Jet hasn't seen him yet. He's progressing confidently towards the meridian. And here comes Sesifet, goddess of the afternoon. This is a surprise. What a surprise this is. A young goddess yet to make her mark. But my word, what a lot of promise there. This is an astonishing bid, eunuchs and gentlemen. And yes, Scrab has fumbled it. He's fumbled it. The shadows danced and spun on the stones of the balcony. And what's this? The elder gods are, there's no other word for it, they are cooperating against these brash newcomers. But plucky young Sesifet is hanging in there, she's exploiting the weakness. She's in! And pulling away now, pulling away, Gil and Scrab appear to be fighting, she's got a clear sky and... Yes! 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 It's noon! It's noon! It's noon! Silence. The priest was aware that everyone was staring at him. Then someone said... Why are you shouting into that bulrush? Sorry, don't know what came over me there. The priestess of Sardak, goddess of caves, snorted at him. Suppose one of them had dropped it, she snapped. But, uh, but, he swallowed. It's not possible, is it? Not really? We all must have eaten something or been out in the sun too long or something, because, I mean, everyone knows that the gods aren't, I, I mean... The sun is a big flaming ball of gas, isn't it, that goes around the world every day, and and the gods, well, you know, there's a very real need in people to believe. I mean, don't get me wrong here. Kumi, even with his head buzzing with thoughts of perfidy, was quicker on the uptake than his colleagues. Get him, lads, he shouted. Four priests grabbed the luckless cutlery worshipper by his arms and legs and gave him a high-speed run across the stones to the edge of the balcony over the parapet, and into the mud-coloured waters of the Dijel. He surfaced, spluttering. "'What did you go and do that for?' he demanded. "'You all know I'm right. None of you really—' The waters of the Dijel opened a lazy jaw, and he vanished, just as the huge winged shape of Scrab buzzed threateningly over the palace and whirred off towards the mountains. Kumi mopped his forehead. "'Whew! Bit of a close shave there,' he said. 
His colleagues nodded, staring at the fading ripples. Suddenly, the Jelly Baby was no place for honest doubt. Honest doubt could get you seriously picked up and your arms and legs torn off. Ah, uh, said one of them, Seffert's going to be a bit upset, though, isn't he? All hail, Seffert, they chorused, just in case. Don't see why, grumbled an elderly priest at the back of the crowd, bloody knife and fork artist. They grabbed him, still protesting, and hurled him into the river. All hail! They paused. Who was he the high priest of, anyway? Bunu, the goat-headed god of goats, wasn't he? All hail Bunu, probably, they chorused, as the sacred crocodiles homed in like submarines. Kumi raised his hands, imploring. It is said that the hour brings forth the man. He was the kind of man that is brought forth by devious and unpleasant hours, and underneath his bald head certain conclusions were beginning to unfold, like things imprisoned for years inside stones. He wasn't yet sure what they were, but they were broadly on the subject of gods, the new age, the need for a firm hand on the helm, and possibly the inserting of Dios into the nearest crocodile. The mere thought filled him with forbidden delight. "'Brethren!' he cried. "'Excuse me,' said the priestess of Sardak. "'And, sistren, thank you. Let us rejoice!' The assembled priests stood in total silence. This was a radical approach which had not hitherto occurred to them. And Kumi looked at their upturned faces and felt a thrill the like of which he had never experienced before. They were frightened out of their wits, and they were expecting him, him, to tell them what to do. "'Yay!' he said. "'And indeed, verily, the hour of the gods!' "'And goddesses, yes, and goddesses, is at hand. "'Um...' "'What next? "'What, when you got right down to it, was he going to tell them to do? "'And then he thought, it doesn't matter, provided I sound confident enough. "'Old Dios always drove them. He never tried to lead them. "'Without him, they're wandering around like sheep.' "'And brethren and ancestren, of course, we must ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, we... Uh, uh, "'Yes!' his voice waxed again with new confidence. "'Yes! We must ask ourselves why the gods are at hand, "'and without doubt it is because we have not been assiduous enough in our worship. "'We have... Uh, we have... "'Lusted after graven idols!' "'The priests exchanged glances. "'Had they? "'How did you do it, actually?' "'And yes, and what about sacrifices? "'Time was when a sacrifice was a sacrifice, "'not some messing around with the chicken and flowers.' "'This caused some coughing in the audience. "'Are we talking maidens here?' "'said one of the priests uncertainly. "'Ahem!' "'And inexperienced young men, too, certainly,' he said quickly. "'Sardak was one of the older goddesses, "'whose female worshippers got up to no good in sacred groves. "'The thought of her wandering around the landscape somewhere, "'bloody to the elbows, made the eyes water. "'Kumi's heart thumped. "'Well, why not?' he said. "'Things were better then, weren't they?' "'But uh, I thought we stopped all that sort of thing, "'population decline and so forth.' There was a monstrous splash out in the river. Tzut, 
the snake-headed god of the upper Dajel, surfaced and regarded the assembled priesthood solemnly. Then Fahez, the crocodile-headed god of the lower Dajel, erupted beside him and made a spirited attempt at biting his head off. The two submerged in a column of spray and a minor tidal wave which slopped over the balcony. "'Ah, but maybe the population declined because we stopped sacrificing virgins of both sexes, of course,' said Kumi hurriedly. "'Have you ever thought of it like that?' They thought of it. Then they thought of it again. "'I don't think the king would approve,' said one of the priests cautiously. "'The king?' shouted Kumi. "'Where is the king? Show me the king! Ask Dios where the king is!' There was a thud by his feet. He looked down in horror as the gold mask bounced and rolled towards the priests. They scattered hurriedly like skittles. Dios strode out into the light of the disputed sun, his face grey with fury. "'The king is dead,' he said. Kumi swayed under the sheer pressure of anger, but rallied magnificently. "'Then his successor,' he began. "'There is no successor,' said Dios. He stared up at the sky. Few people can look directly at the sun, but under the venom of Dios's gaze the sun itself might have flinched and looked away. Dios's eyes sighted down that fearsome nose like twin rangefinders. To the air in general, he said, "'Coming here as if they own the place, how dare they!' Kumi's mouth dropped open. He started to protest, and a kilowatt stare silenced him. Kumi sought support from the crowd of priests who were busily inspecting their nails or staring intently into the middle distance. The message was clear. He was on his own. Although, if by some chance he won the Battle of Wills, he'd be surrounded by people assuring him that they had been behind him all the way. Anyway, they do own the place, he mumbled. What? They, uh, they, they do own the place, Dios, Kumi repeated. His temper gave out. They're the sodding gods, Dios. They're our gods, Dios hissed. We're not their people. They're my gods, and they will learn to do as they are instructed. Kumi gave up the frontal assault. You couldn't outstare that sapphire stare. You couldn't stand the war-axed nose, and most of all no man could be expected to dent the surface of Dios's terrifying righteousness. But, he managed, Dios waved him into silence with a trembling hand. They've no right, he said. I did not give any orders. They have no right. Then what are you going to do? said Kumi. Dios's hands opened and closed fitfully. He felt like a royalist might feel if suddenly all the royals turned up in his living room and started rearranging the furniture. A good royalist. A royalist who cut out pictures of all the royals and stuck them in a scrapbook. A royalist who wouldn't hear a word said about them. They did such a good job and they can't answer back. He longed for the necropolis and the cool silence among his old friends and a quick sleep after which he'd be able to think so much more clearly. Kumi's heart leapt. Dios's discomfort was a crack which, with due care and attention, could take a wedge. But you couldn't use a hammer. Head on, Dios could outfight the world. The old man was shaking again. I do not presume to tell them how to run affairs in the hereunder, he said. They shall not presume to instruct me in how to run my kingdom. Kumi salted this treasonable statement away for further study and patted him gently on the back. 
"'You're right, of course,' he said. Dios's eyes swivelled. "'I am?' he said suspiciously. "'I'm sure that as the King's Minister you will find a way. "'You have our full support, O oh Dios.' Kumi waved an uplifted hand at the priests, who chorused wholehearted agreement. "'If you couldn't depend on kings and gods, you could always rely on old Dios. "'There wasn't one of them that wouldn't prefer the uncertain wrath of the gods to a rebuke from Dios. "'Dios terrified them in a very positive, human way that no supernatural entity ever could. "'Dios would sort it out. "'And we take no heed to these mad rumours about the king's disappearance. "'They are undoubtedly wild exaggerations with no foundation,' said Kumi. The priests nodded, while in each mind a tiny rumour uncurled the length of its tail. "'What rumours?' said Dios, out of the corner of his mouth. "'So enlighten us, master, as to the path we must now take,' said Kumi. Dios wavered. He did not know what to do. For him this was a new experience. This was change. All he could think of... All that was pressing forward in his mind were the words of the ritual of the third hour, which he had said at this time for how long? Too long, too long. And he should have gone to his rest long before, but the time had never been right. Was never anyone capable. They would have been lost without him. The kingdom would founder. He would be letting everyone down. And so he'd crossed the river. He'd swore every time that it was the last, but it never was not when the chill fetched his limbs and the decades had become longer. And now when his kingdom needed him, the words of a ritual had scored themselves into the pathways of his brain and bewildered all attempts at thought. Um, he said. You bastard chewed happily. Tepic had tethered him too near an olive tree which was getting a terminal pruning. Sometimes the camel would stop, gaze up briefly at the seagulls that circled everywhere above Ifib City, and subject them to a short, deadly burst of olive stones. He was turning over in his mind an interesting new concept in thou-dimensional physics, which unified time, space, magnetism, gravity, and for some reason broccoli. Periodically he would make noises like distant quarry blasting, but which merely indicated that all stomachs were functioning perfectly. Petracci sat under the tree, feeding the tortoise on vine leaves. Heat crackled off the white walls of the tavern, but Tepic thought how different it was from the old kingdom. There, even the heat was old. The air was musty and lifeless. It pressed like a vice. You felt it was made of boiled centuries. Here, it was leavened by the breeze from the sea. It was edged with salt crystals. It carried exciting hints of wine, more than a hint, in fact, because Zeno was already on his second amphora. This was the kind of place where things rolled up their sleeves and started. "'But I still don't understand about the tortoise,' he said with some difficulty. He'd just taken his first mouthful of Ephebian wine, and it had apparently varnished the back of his throat. "'It's quite simple,' said Zeno. "'Look, let's say this olive stone is the arrow, and this,' he cast round aimlessly, "'and this stunned seagull is the tortoise, right? "'Now, when you fire the arrow... It goes from here to the seagull, uh, the tortoise. Am I right? I suppose so, but, but, by this time, the seagull, uh, the, the, the tortoise, has moved on a bit, hasn't he? Am I right? I suppose so, 
said Tebbick helplessly. Zeno gave him a look of triumph. So the arrow has to go a bit further, doesn't it, to where the tortoise is now? Meanwhile, the tortoise has flow moved on. Not much, I'll grant you, but it doesn't have to be much. Am I right? So the arrow has a bit further to go. But the point is that by the time it gets to where the tortoise is now, the tortoise isn't there. So if the tortoise keeps moving, the arrow will never hit it. It'll keep getting closer and closer, but never hit it. Q-E-D. Are you right? said Tepic automatically. No, said Ibid coldly. There's a dozen tortoise kebabs to prove him wrong. The trouble with my friend here is that he doesn't know the difference between a postulate and a metaphor of human existence, or a hole in the ground. It didn't hit it yesterday, snapped Zeno. Yes, I was watching. You hardly pulled the string back. I saw you, said Ibid. They started to argue again. Tepic stared into his wine mug. These men are philosophers, he thought. They had told him so, so their brains must be so big that they have room for ideas that no one else would consider for five seconds. On the way to the tavern, Zeno had explained to him, for example, why it was logically impossible to fall out of a tree. Tepic had described the vanishing of the kingdom, but he hadn't revealed his position in it. He hadn't a lot of experience of these matters, but he had a very clear feeling that kings who hadn't got a kingdom any more were not likely to be very popular in neighbouring countries. There had been one or two like that in Ankh-Morpork, deposed royalty who had fled their suddenly dangerous kingdoms for Ankh's hospitable bosom, carrying nothing but the clothes they stood up in, and a few wagon-loads of jewels. The city, of course, welcomed anyone, regardless of race, colour, class or creed, who had spending money in incredible amounts. But nevertheless, the inhumation of surplus monarchs was a regular source of work for the assassins killed. There was always someone back home who would be certain that deposed monarchs stayed that way. It was usually a case of air today, gone tomorrow. "'I think it got caught up in geometry,' he said hopefully. "'I heard you were very good at geometry here,' he added, "'and perhaps you could tell me how to get back.' "'Geometry is not my forte,' said Ibid, "'as you probably know.' "'Sorry? Haven't you read my principles of ideal government?' "'I'm afraid not.' "'Or my discourse on historical inevitability?' "'No.' "'Ibid looked crestfallen. "'Oh,' he said. "'Ibid is a well-known authority on everything,' said Zeno, "'except for geometry and interior decorating and elementary logic.' "'Ibid glared at him. "'What about you, then?' said Tepic. Zeno drained his mug. I'm more into the destruct testing of axioms, he said. The chap you need is Pythagonal, a very acute man with an angle. He was interrupted by the clatter of hooves. Several horsemen galloped with reckless speed past the tavern and on up the winding cobbled streets of the city. They seemed very excited about something. Ibid picked a stunned seagull out of his wine cup and laid it on the table. He was looking thoughtful. "'If the old kingdom has really disappeared,' he said. "'It has,' said Tepic firmly. "'It's not something you can be mistaken about, really. "'Then that means our border is concurrent with that of Tussort,' said Ibid ponderously. "'Pardon?' said Tepic. "'There's nothing between us,' explained the philosopher. "'Oh, dear. "'That means we shall be forced to make war.' "'Why?' 
Ibid opened his mouth, stopped, and turned to Zeno. Why does it mean we'll be forced to make war? he said. Historical imperative, said Zeno. Ah, yes, I knew it was something like that. I'm afraid it is inevitable. It's a shame, but there you are. There was another clatter as another party of horsemen rounded the corner, heading downhill this time. They wore the high-plumed helmets of Ephebian soldiery and were shouting enthusiastically. Ibid settled himself more comfortably on the bench and folded his hands. "'That'll be the tyrant's men,' he said, as the troop galloped through the city gates and out onto the desert. "'He's sending them to check. You may depend upon it.' Tepic knew about the enmity between Ephebe and Tassort, of course. The old kingdom had profited mightily by it, by seeing that the merchants of both sides had somewhere discreet in which to trade with one another. He drummed his fingers on the table. "'You haven't fought each other for thousands of years,' he said. "'You were tiny countries in those days. It was just a scrap. Now you're huge. People could get hurt. Doesn't that worry you?' "'It's a matter of pride,' said Ibid, but his voice was tinged with uncertainty. "'I don't think there's much choice.' "'It was that bloody wooden cow or whatever,' said Zeno. "'They've never forgiven us for it.' "'If we don't attack them, they'll attack us first, said Ibid. "'Right,' said Zeno. "'So we'd better retaliate before they have a chance to strike.' The two philosophers stared uncomfortably at one another. "'On the other hand,' said Ibid, "'war makes it very difficult to think straight.' "'There is that,' Zeno agreed, "'especially for dead people.' There was an embarrassed silence, broken only by Petracci's voice, singing to the tortoise, and the occasional squeak of stricken seagulls. "'What day is it?' said Ibid. "'Tuesday,' said Tepic. "'I think,' said Ibid, "'that it might be a good idea if you came to the symposium. We have one every Tuesday,' he added. "'All the greatest minds in Ephib will be there. All this needs thinking about.' He glanced at Petracci. "'However,' he said. Your young woman cannot attend, naturally. Females are absolutely forbidden. Their brains overheat. End of CD 6